0: If you take your Bibles with me and turn in them to our study of the book of Revelation. As I told you last week, our, there was a little bit of a misunderstanding on my part as to which service I was teaching last week after the conference I was at in California. And so many of you heard, or maybe even heard for the first time, what I was teaching in our evening service in 1 John And I said to you then, it was God's providence that we were there, and uh, I believe that each and every Sunday, God takes us where He would lead us, and uh, we are in the book of Revelation this morning. This has been a wonderful study over the past year, as we have seen the glory of Jesus Christ in all that has been revealed about Him through our study of this awe-inspiring book. It's been a wonderful study for me. I was telling somebody this week because we were approaching the end of this study, they were asking me where we're going next and I was kind of going through things in my mind about how, we're gonna, how and where we're going to go next and, and I said, you know, there's a sense in me as we come to the end of this book in wanting to just go back to chapter 1 and do it all again because we, I'm sure there's so much here that we haven't really understood and come to grips with. Be frightened we're not going to do that, although it would be profitable for us. But this has been a great study. It is truly amazing to realize, as we have been going through every chapter, every verse, we are seeing the mind of God on display concerning our future. Think about that. That is just an amazing thought. This is... What God desires and what God has planned for us to come. This is the history of the world to come. God is the God of truth. I prayed about that just a little bit ago. God is always the God of truth. Everything he does and everything he says is absolute truth. We Sometimes don't always accept it that way, but that is in fact the very reality of it. There is a liberal bumper sticker that has been in our world for quite some time and it says this. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. That is one of the most liberal statements we could ever utter. You go, wait a minute, it sounds pretty good. Well, it, it sounds good if... Our determination settles the Word of God. The reality is God said it. That settles it. Whether we believe it or not makes no issue with the reality of the absolute truth of the Word of God. Whether you believe it or don't believe it, you will one day bow to it. Because God is a God of absolute truth. And for those who have believed his word, what is said here in Revelation is then a book for you. This is a book for the Christian. The joy of our eternal inheritance, the joy of all that we have in Christ Jesus has been revealed to us, has been disclosed to us, and it is a glorious future for us to behold. Now we began this final section in Revelation just a few weeks ago and and we began to see our future home as as it is described to us here in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. And first John by his vision and writing down and being faithful to the very words he was told at the beginning to write down everything he sees he's faithful and he's right written this down and we get to see through his eyes first the external view of our new future home the one that he describes to us here it is unlike anything that we have ever seen or will ever see in this life we saw the external view begin to be unfolded for us in chapter 21, verses 9 through 21. If you want to hear about all of that, you can go back a few sermons online and pull that down and hear where we've been. And all of it is, is uh, beyond our complete comprehension. We we can read it, we can look at it, and yet to comprehend it all and have the, the clearest picture of exactly what that is, it's so foreign to us, it's so beyond us, it's so un-this-world-like that we just can't even comprehend it all. And then John took us from the external view to the internal view so that we were able to see the inside, beginning in chapter 21, verses 22 through 27. There we learn that our new home will be glorious, not necessarily or primarily because it has its physical beauty, and that is certainly true of what we have read in Revelation and seen. It is not glorious because we we will be able to, in the future, in the glories of the new heaven and new earth and new Jerusalem, be able to interact with all those Bible characters that we've always wanted to interact with. Those that believed God. We want to see them. We want to talk to them. We want to say, What's it, what was it like, Peter, to step out of the boat and walk on the water and only to lose your faith and fall? What was that like? Well, that'll be kind of cool. It'll be interesting to even think that we might do that, even though God will be consuming us in every kind of way. I'm not even sure those thoughts will enter our mind, but it's nice to speculate that they will. But that's not why it's so glorious. It won't even be a glorious place because we'll be able to interact with all of those who have been saved, who have gone before us, relatives and friends and family and historical people that we have read their biographies about and say, boy, it would be nice to hear and talk to that person. That's not why it will be glorious. All of that will certainly be true. Be It's even exciting to think about. But what makes this place so glorious is this one fact. Verse 22 puts it in a nutshell of verse of chapter 21. And I saw no temple in it for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Temple, dwelling place. The greatest treasure, the greatest glory, the greatest beauty, the... the the most magnificent thing of the new heaven and the new earth in the new Jerusalem is not any of those people or anything like that. It is God himself. And this is what we as Christians need to grasp. This is what we need to understand. This is what ought to come to our minds when we think about the glories of the new heaven. Because if if God were not with us there... If in the new Jerusalem, in our new future home, if that was simply a place that is different from this place, if God was not actually with us there, it would cease to be heaven. You see, what makes hell so hellish? What makes hell such a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth and constant torment and Turmoil and pain and agony and struggle. What makes it that forever and ever is that torment is brought on by a supernatural separation from the very presence of God. Listen, one of the worst judgments of God against sinful humanity is to leave them to themselves. You say, well, that that doesn't sound all that bad, really. Well, turn just for a moment, and of course, this is all just for us to kind of get into this this morning. Turn just for a moment back to Romans chapter 1. And we're not going to study this, but I just want to show you this reality of the worst judgment of God's wrath upon man. is for God to say, have it your way. Leave us to ourselves. okay. verse 18 of chapter 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So there's this principle going on that all men have an intelligence about God, an intelligence that the wrath of God is revealed. It is manifest to all men because they're all unrighteousness, because every man is unrighteousness and they know God because of all that God has created. So through general revelation, through the creation of the world, God has revealed himself to all men so that men have a knowledge of God and they understand enough about God for them to be condemned. Verse 21 of Romans 1 continues in that they have a self-imposed ignorance upon themselves for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile. In their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. So they didn't become darkened simply because uh, uh, God chose not to reveal himself. No, they became darkened because they refused to acknowledge God. It was a self-willed, self-propelled, self-ignorance. They professed to be wise, but they're actually fools. Because when you exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for any kind of idolatrous stuff anything and idolatry be it whether it's the form of some corruptible thing of man or anything in creation that god had created and you begin to worship those kinds of things you are a fool so what does god do god says okay you don't want me have it your way this is the wrath of God unleashed on men, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the Creator instead of the or the creature instead of the Creator. So for this reason, verse 26, God gave them over. The gave them over is simply this. God removes the restraint. God says, Have it your way. Go with yourself. And so he hands them over. He gives them over to what's really there in their heart. The natural passions for women exchanging the natural function for that which is unnatural. And the same way men do the same thing. And so the whole reality of homosexuality and and sexual sin in our society has nothing to do with the reality that people were born that way. It has everything to do with choices based upon the rejection of God. You reject God. God says, have it your way. Verse 28, and they, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, what did God do? Okay, God gives them over. The spiral downward continues. To what? To a depraved mind. To do those things which are not proper, being filled with what? All unrighteousness, all wickedness, all greed, all evil. All envy, all murder, all strife, all deceit, all malice, all gossip, all slander, all haters of God. Without understanding, verse 31, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And even though they know the ordinance of God, those who practice those things are worthy of the judgment of God. They're worthy to die. They're worthy of death. They're worthy of the ultimate judgment upon man. They not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who do those things. You see, that's the wrath of God revealed against men. That's God saying, okay, men, have it your way. That's one of the worst judgments of God against sinful, Christ-rejecting humanity. So the torment of hell is the reality of God's supernatural separation from His presence. You say, how does that work? I don't know how that works. God's omnipresent. But in some way, through His divine omniscience and His divine omnipotence, His power, He will, in some way, there will be this reality of separation from God in hell. That's why heaven is so glorious. God is there. And this final chapter in the book of Revelation These are the final words of John's vision concerning the future history of the world. This is the final view of our new home, the new city, the new Jerusalem. And now you and I are permitted to look through the eyes of John. And by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we are to get a now an eternal view of this city. And the central feature of the city is none other than the throne of God. The throne of God. Notice in chapter twenty-two, Revelation, in verse one, and He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. If you go down to it is fitting for the words that end this entire section in verse 5 to be the strongest expression in the Greek language to describe something that will never end. Notice in verse 5 at the end, and they shall reign forever and ever. John writes. And once imprinted on our minds at the very last moment, this city and all those who know God through His Son shall reign forever and ever. It will not end. From age to age without end. That's, that's the literal, really. We and this city will exist with God forever. And the antithesis is also true. Those who do not know God, those who have rejected Jesus Christ, will suffer the torment of hell separated from God forever. No longer will God give us over to ourselves, as Roman 1 says, because sin is gone. do you love what the songwriter wrote when he said, when we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. When we spend 10,000 years in the glory of the new heaven and the new earth, and we've sung God's praise every day for 10,000 years, we have no less days than the first day when we started to the end. There is no end. Our time... There will be without end, and we will be with God. And the throne is its central feature. The throne, the rule of God, the place of rule, the source of rule, the reality of God ruling. We've seen the beauty of the outside of the city, the external view, the reality of God in In the persons of the Father and and the Son being the very place of worship where the temple is, or you would think it would be, there is no temple. It is simply God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple for us to worship. And that place of worship and everything within the city and in this new earth flow from the very throne of God. Jesus taught the disciples to pray. And he said in John Or in Matthew chapter 6, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven right, the, the normal thing that we quote as the Lord's Prayer. Jesus is teaching His disciples how to pray. It's not some mantra that we're to continue to pray. Certainly you can pray those words, but it's not to be a mantra to be repeated. Jesus is simply teaching His disciples how to pray, and He says, Listen, pray this, Lord, let Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, and, and the rule of God is supreme in the glories of heaven now. Heaven never bucks God's rule." like earth does or at least like man on earth does every other part of God's creation does exactly what God has commanded it to do and so in the new heaven the new earth the throne of God the rule of God the very reality uh, the throne synonymous with the very nature and character of God if we were to summarize the very character of God in just one simple word, it would be that word we like, perfect. God is absolutely perfect. He is absolutely perfect in every way. In fact, John, in his epistle in 1 John, in 1 John chapter 2, John says God is light and in him is no darkness at all. See, that's a very important statement about God himself. For if there was even a speck of darkness, darkness being the, the very concept and realities of any imperfection, then if that was any part, any little speck in God, then God would cease to be God. And like Paul said about the resurrection, if the resurrection did not happen, we are the worst of all people to be pitied. And it would be that way if God was not God. If God ceased to be God. Or if God was simply a God who had some point or some piece of darkness within Him. Then we of all people are the worst to be pitied. But God is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all. And the light is a description of His perfection. So something without any kind or any form of defilement. That's, that's God. Our God is without any kind or any form of defilement within his very character and nature. So when we see our new eternal home, everything is perfect. Everything flows from the throne of God. Everything is perfect. And so I want us this morning with that in our minds, the reality of the perfection of God, which encompasses the reality of our new heaven and new earth and the new city. I I want to help us see eight different facets of our perfect home from this passage. Eight different facets of, of our perfect home, eight facets of this eternal home, this perfect home that are reflected in the perfection of God himself. Eight facets that are reflected in the perfection of God Himself. Number one is this. There will be perfect provision. Perfect provision. Now, I don't know about you, but there are times on earth when I lack. I don't lack because God has somehow failed to provide exactly what I need for each and every given day, even if that means I miss something that someone, something in the world says I need. God never fails to meet the needs of those who are his children in every kind of way and for their best. But there are times in our world when I lack, and yet here, there is perfect provision. There is never any lack. Notice verses 1 and 2. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal. And then in verse 2. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve fruits, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The river and the tree clearly indicate to us this endless provision available for God's people. And all of it is coming directly from God. It's flowing from the, from the throne of God so that we are completely and continually satisfied in the glories of the new heaven and new earth. But notice that it isn't a normal kind of river, nor is it a normal kind of tree. Rivers here on this earth are normal to us, and yet they vary in how much water they have. They're not consistent in those amounts. They certainly vary in their purity. I know I was in Honduras recently taking a, a quick bath in the river. And came out more dirty than when I went in. There's no guarantee that tomorrow a river will be there. Trees come and go. Trees grow and die. Trees produce and don't produce. Depending on what kind of soil they're in and what kind of cultivation has taken place. But this is not a normal kind of river. This is a river of the water of life. Notice that and it's lined with the tree of life this is a a life river this is a river of the water of life that doesn't simply mean water like h2o kind of water remember there's no sea in the new earth there's no water cycle like we know it here on the earth we See evaporation take place in the oceans, it goes up into the sky, it creates clouds, God moves those clouds over the earth, and it rains down upon the earth, and that rain makes rivers. Now that taking place, it seems, on the new heaven and new earth, there isn't that anymore, so this is a river, but it is a water of life kind of river. In other words, it's unlike anything here on this earth. You say, what is it like? We're not told what it's like. All we are told is that that it's like the city itself. It is crystal clear. It is as clear as crystal. The city itself is, was described the same way. Clear as crystal, Com- completely pure, has the complete purity and the undefiled character of God Himself. And notice it flows. From the throne of God. Right? It come. It's coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So, so the source of its emanation is not some rain that falls down on the earth and falls into high peaks that flows down out to the ocean. No, the source of it all is God Himself. He is the living water, Jesus says. Come unto me and I will give you water. And you will never thirst again. So it's coming from the throne. And through or in the middle of the street. First part of verse 2. Would make no sense to stop at after the lamb in verse 1. Because the finish of the sentence is right at the beginning of verse 2. This is why I've said to you in the past. You can't just read verses. You have to read punctuation and sentences. By the way the word street is. In the singular here, and I don't believe it's a collective singular, meaning that every street is included in this street. I think this just simply means this this street. It's not running down every street. It's not going down the middle of every street in the New Jerusalem. But the availability of this river is to everybody that flows from the throne down the middle of the, I guess, main street. It's in the middle of that street. And on either side of the river is the tree of life. We're familiar with the tree of life. We're familiar with that because there was one in the Garden of Eden. Remember Genesis chapter 2 and 3? There was a tree of life there. Our first parents had access to it, Adam and Eve. When they were placed in the garden, they were told to cultivate the garden. They had Uh, responsibilities in the perfect Eden that God had created, and yet they had a command by God that they were not to uh, go and eat of the fruit of the tree of life. They could sit under its shade. They could look at its beauty. They could admire the reality of God's creation and all that it was. And yet they were not to eat of it. When they chose to sin against God and go their own way and reject the reality of God, just like all of us in Romans chapter 1 and all of us today, when they chose to do that and eat of its fruit, they were cast out of the garden. They were separated from God. They used to walk in the garden in the cool of the day, Adam did, talking with God. And yet, after they sinned, God separated himself in some supernatural kind of way, and an angel was placed at the entrance of the garden in order to guard the way to the tree of life. What a gracious act of God that he would not allow those sinners to be confirmed forever in their sinfulness because God had a plan to save them that he told them about in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 that he would send one who would come and crush the serpent's head. But now, in Revelation chapter 22, all of that has changed. Now there's a new tree of life. The new tree of life has replaced its ancient forerunner that was in the garden. This tree now lines the banks of the river of life. And by implication, it seems that this tree is drawing in the life-giving nourishment of the water of life in order to produce its provision for the people of God in a continual fashion seems to remind us at least in some ways of psalm chapter 1 about the man who is blessed blessed is the man who who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked nor nor sit in the seat of the scoffer nor nor follow in the uh, camp himself out in the in those who reject God and I'm paraphrasing there But he's blessed and he will be like a tree planted by rivers of living water. Living water. Streams of living water. This tree is planted by the river of the water of life. And there is provision here. You say, what is that provision? Notice it says they will produce 12 kinds of fruit, 12 kinds of fruit literally says 12 fruits, 12 fruits. That's the literal interpretation. And every month it will produce fruit. Some people ask, does that mean there will be 12 fruits every month or does that mean there will be a different fruit, one for each month? I don't know the answer to that. All it says here is there'll be 12 fruits and the reality is that John, I believe, is even using the terminology of every month to accommodate us because remember, there is no sun, there is no moon, and we live in an everlasting now. It isn't as if we're counting days off and going, oh, let me check my watch to see what day it is in eternity. We're not going to know if it's February, March, April, May, June, whatever we call those months, we're not going to know any of that. John is just looking at this and trying to to let us know that that in these uh, times, in these specific times, there's going to be continual fulfillment. All the time there's going to be fruit produced by this tree. It's continually supplying an ever-changing variety of provision from the Godhead to the people of God. In other words, there's no need of want for us in the new glory, new heaven, new earth. Reminds us of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall have no need of want. There's nothing I need to want. He leads me by waters. He restores my soul. So the river of life, I believe, means the highest life the highest life, the best life, the greatest joys, the most fulfillment of all of life flows from the very fountainhead, the source, God Himself. And then there will be this regular cycle of joyous provision from God Himself filled with all the variety that God is, changing all the time that comes from the tree of life. And not so only will its fruit provide for us every provision, but also notice its leaves will be therapy for us. Therapy for us. Notice the end of verse 2. Yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree we for the healing of the nations. I think the word healing is a, an unfortunate word because it conjures up in our minds there, there must be sickness going on there. There must be some kind of need for healing. There must be some kind of uh, way in which we would get sick. And that certainly cannot be true because there is no sickness. There is no death. So what is he saying? Well, the word here is the word therapion. It's it's where we get our word therapy or therapeutic. Therapeutic. That is to say that we are enriched, that our joy is enriched, that our blessings are enriched, that flow from the throne of God, from God Himself, like, as one man said, like a, a supernatural vitamin booster. God has chosen to administer his gracious care of us through those means. The river of the water of life, the tree of life, and the leaves on the tree of life. So from the throne of God in the middle of the city comes the perfect provision of eternal flowing life. And it comes with a variety of enrichment given by the tree of life, boosted by the leaves of the tree what a blessing so that's the first that's the first reality that's the first facet of this perfect place flowing from a perfect god number two is this there will be perfect sinlessness that's kind of an oxymoronic statement perfect sinlessness as if there's some kind of sinlessness that gets close to perfection but really isn't there no sin is is opposite of perfection but I say it that way just to get our attention. Notice in verse 3, there shall no longer be any curse. In other words, this is the ideal consummation of all of history, and it is emphasized by the fact that the curse that was upon mankind, that was brought upon him because of sin, because of the entrance of sin that came upon through Adam in the garden in Genesis 3, will be now gone forever gone when israel was beginning their wanderings in the wilderness after god had delivered them from the land of egypt god said to them and the people agreed deuteronomy 27 26 god said this cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of the law how by doing them Cursed is anyone who who has heard my law and yet doesn't do them. They're, they're cursed. The law is a curse upon them. And all the people shall say, Amen. People go, Yep, that's right, God. You, your word is absolutely true. So any nonconformity to the law of God was to end in a curse from God. And you see that exercised out even in Romans chapter 1 as the wrath of God is revealed against all men for their, what? Unrighteousness. They disagree and disobey God. Of course, Israel disobeyed God, and God, because of sin, brought on the curse. But he promised in the final book of the Old Testament, Malachi, he promised this, Malachi 4, verse 5 and 6. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Jesus Christ said, John the Baptist was Elijah. I'm going to send this prophet before the great and terrible day. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. What? So that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Final words of the Old Testament is, I'm not, I, I, I don't want to have to bring a curse. And then 400 years later after the intertestamental period, the New Testament opens up with the birth of Jesus Christ. The one comes who takes away the curse. And of course God sends his son, right? Jesus Christ so that so that Christ as the word of God tells us might become the curse for us. And here in the New Jerusalem there will be perfect sinlessness. Why? Because there will be no curse. Why? Because God is there. God is there. Jesus Christ is on the throne. So number three, there will be perfect sinlessness, number or number two, perfect sinlessness, number three is this. There will be perfect government. Perfect government. Notice what he says, verse three, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. The throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. With the curse ended and gone, with sin no longer there, the government of our God and of His Christ will rule the day. Nothing arbitrary. Nothing capricious. Nothing uh, born out of sin. No sinful self-serving attempts of leading. No government like we see it today. No, no dictator A hard-handed rule of government like we see in some places. No government even like our own. Only the perfect direction of our perfect God. Every perfect day leading us in every perfect way. No need for us to wonder what will take place. No need for us to go, boy, I sure hope they get this right. No need for us to serve our own needs or our own best interests. No need for that. No need for us to go to a voting booth and pick the, the best of the worst. No, the same God on the, on the throne now in the glories of heaven will be the, the God who's on the throne then in the new heaven and the new earth. So his governing will be without flaw forever. We have a God like that now, you and I. He's ruling, you know, today he's he's on the throne in the glories of heaven. Christ is going to return and rule on this earth for a thousand years. And then the new heaven and the new earth where he will rule unto eternity. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 28, Randy read it this morning. I am with you. Part time. That what he said. No, he told his disciples as he's sending them out to evangelize the world. Listen, guys, all authority has been given to me. I am with you. Always, always. So we have perfect provision. We have perfect sinlessness. We have a perfect government. There will be fourthly perfect service. Perfect service. Notice the end of verse three: and his bond servants shall serve him. I love that. John writes, they shall serve him. I can't help but think John was thinking in his mind, that is so different than today. So many serve self. We, we, we might struggle with that on this earth, but we will not struggle with it there. In the glories of our new home in the new heaven and new earth, we will continually and without any hesitation serve the Lord. We will not say to ourselves in our heart, in our mind, you know, Lord, I'm just not sure I can do that. I have a pretty busy week. We will not say, you know what, Lord, I don't know if I want to go serve that person. They haven't been real nice to me lately. None of that's going to take place. That's part of our struggle, this side of eternal glory. It's not necessarily that we don't want to serve outside of ourselves. You know what it is? The reality is, if we're fair, the problem is is that we love to to serve self above serving others. It isn't that we go, you know what, I just don't want to serve anybody. That's not the problem in the Christian reality. The Christian reality is I just love serving me better and above serving you. That's the problem. Our flesh loves self-service. And so when we give into the deeds of sinful flesh, we find ourselves refusing to serve others. When we give into the deeds of our own sinful desires, is it any wonder we don't reach out to serve others? Is it any wonder we get mad and angry and say to people, even our brothers and sisters in Christ, I can't believe you didn't serve me in that way. I'm mad. Nobody's serving me. You know why we're doing that? Because we're so bent on our own self-service and we're not serving anybody else. All that's going to be gone in our new home. There will be perfect servants of Christ. This is not slave labor, folks. This is not forced work. This is the right sense of the word slave, doulos in the original in the in the New Testament. This is the right Understanding of it. This will be our glad service to the Lord God. Why? Because he's our God. And we perfectly love him. Is what Jesus said. John 12, 26. If anyone serves me. He must follow me. And where I am. There will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And when Jesus says he must follow me, he's not only saying he must follow me to where I go. He's going to say that in chapter 14. Why are you distressed, guys, when I'm leaving? Listen, if I go away, I'm going to come back for you. Just settle down and, and, and take heart to that. Trust my promise. You trust God, trust also in me. But this is chapter 12. This is before that. And he says, if you serve me, you must follow me. He means in my footsteps. And then he goes into John 13 and what does he do? He He's there in the upper room and the guys are all wondering who's the best. And Jesus gets up from the table and takes the towel. Gets on his knees with the basin and serves them. God incarnate cleaning their feet, doing what. The lowest of house workers would do. That's what Jesus is saying. Look, you, you you need to be like me if you serve me. That's whom God honors. So there's no longer a curse, there's perfect government, there's perfect servants. Fifth, there will be perfect vision perfect vision this is so amazing to me perfect vision verse 4 and they shall see his face they who the servants of god you and i they shall see his face this is absolutely amazing to me because in exodus chapter 33 moses the servant of god the one who god calls into service to bring his people out of egypt asks god I need to see you. I want to see your face. And God says to Moses, you cannot look upon my glory. If anybody looks on my face, you will die. God graciously hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and, and lets his character pass by him. The backside of God. How, how is that? I, I don't know. But God somehow parades his very character by Moses. So Moses sees just a reflection of the very glory of God in, in the blazing reality of the character of God as he sees it. And God said to him before that, you can't see my face or you're going to die. No man could see God and live. Knowing that makes this statement so extraordinary. In our new home, all that changes, you see. There we can look at the blazing glory of God in all of its fullness and not die. Can somebody please explain to me what that's like? I can't even look at the sun for three seconds without the retina in my head burning up. Why will we be... We, Why will we be able to do that? Because we are like God. We're not gods, but we're like God, and we too are holy. You see, to see God's face as a sinner would be to be consumed with his holy hatred against sin, to be consumed by his very wrath. But in our new home, we will see his face in all its glory. John reminds us in the gospel, John 1, verse 18, No man has seen God at any time. No man. The day is coming, however, when we will indeed see him face to face. Paul said in 1 Timothy six fifteen, We will see him who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. We will see him. Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, For they shall, what? See God. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who have been cleansed by the very power of God through through the death to come in Christ. Blessed are those who are pure in heart because of repentance and acceptance by faith of Jesus Christ. For they, and they only, shall see God. And here in Revelation we see the very fruition of that. So in our... New home, we will be exposed to the full face of God's eternal glory and not be consumed. And I believe Christ will be the bullseye focal point of that manifestation of God. When we see God in glory, we will see the full manifestation of the glory of Jesus Christ right there face to face. Perfect vision. And then John says, look, you'll have perfect likeness. Perfect likeness. They shall see his face, verse 4, and he shall be, his name shall be on their foreheads. This is perfect likeness in our service before the throne and throughout earth. Each one of us will bear the likeness of God, bearing his identity on our very person. There will be no mistaking it. We are God's possession. No mistake. In other words, there will be no fakes in the glories to come. There will be no fakes. There will be no imposters in heaven. Some may fake it now. Some may claim to know Christ now. They may claim to have a relationship with God through some kind of means now other than Christ. Some may even seem as if by their very actions that they are true indeed children of the Father. But there, there will be no fakers. Each one is going to be identified by his very name. It means no deception, no confusion, no wrong identity, no false people. We are His. We are identified as His. And all that is His is ours. We will have perfect likeness to our Savior. That doesn't mean we'll all look alike in our features. Certainly the disciples recognized who Jesus was by His earthly likeness. But certainly our character will all be alike. Because we'll be like God. We will be identified with God. So we have perfect provision. Perfect sinlessness. Perfect government. Perfect service. Perfect vision. Perfect likeness. Number seven. There will be perfect illumination. Perfect illumination. And there shall no longer be any night. And they shall not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them. So what was said in a, in a parenthetical kind of way by John back in chapter 21, verse 5, and in the daytime, quote, parentheses, for there shall be no night, its gate shall never be closed, describing the, the internal reality of the city. Here it is said as a fact. There will be no night there. Since there is no night, there's no need for any artificial light of the lamp, no need for rest. Notice he says, no, nor shall they have need of a lamp to light. They won't need the light of the sun. Nothing is needed for any light. Why? Because the Lord God will illumine us. The them there refers back to the servants and and all those who are his. That's what illumines them. That's what shines the way. That's what fills them. Kind of reminds us of John 1, doesn't it? Let Let me just read it for us. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. So He's the source of life, just like here, the throne, the source, God on the throne, the source of all life, the water of life. He's the source of life. He's the source of light, perfection. The light shines in the darkness, John said, and the darkness did not comprehend it. doesn't mean they couldn't comprehend it. Romans 1 says they suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. They pushed it away. So there came a man sent from God whose name was John. Talking about John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify about the light. So that all might believe through him. He wasn't the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which, coming into the world, notice, enlightens every man. Jesus Christ, God, God is light. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, comes into the world and he illumines Everything. He, he brings truth to bear and the light of the truth in every way, both in his person and in his word, to everything. He enlightens every man. And then in verse 14 of that same chapter, And the word became flesh. He dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness, that is Jesus, we have all received and grace upon grace. The law was realized or was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized, manifested, shown through Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. You see, Jesus Christ will be there in the blazing glory, and Jesus Christ will be the very one through whom and by whom and from whom we receive all provision and walk by that light. There's no need for sun and moon. There is a radiation that will brighten everything, and it's not only the truth of God, it is Jesus Christ, God Himself. So not only will we have the perfect light of truth, but we will have the perfect light of God personified, continually illumining everything. To have darkness in the glories of the new heaven and the new earth would be to shut up and shroud God. Jesus Christ is the only one who could put some kind of shroud around the very glory of God so that we would not be killed And yet here in the glories of the new heaven, we will see the face of God. We will look into his face and that light will shine brightly and illumine us and everything in us and through us and for us. And then the last final blessing. Is that there will be perfect blessing, perfect blessing. And they shall reign forever and ever Not only are we serving God, but we are reigning with God forever. What a blessing. God not only has us as his children, but we, just like Christ who sat on his father's throne, we too are reigning with God. What a profound privilege. What an overwhelming privilege that God would even, first of all, just allow us to live even though we don't deserve it. And that he would allow us to serve him when we should have been banished to the lake of fire separated from him forever and ever and ever. But that God would allow us to reign with him. What a perfect blessing. Romans 5.17 For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, it is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Reigning with Christ. You may not remember this. But way back in Revelation chapter 3. and verse 21. Jesus promised. To the church. The one who conquers. I will grant him. Listen. To sit with me. On my throne. As I also conquered. And sat down with my father. On his throne. You say, how does that work? I mean, the throne's there. God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are on the throne. And, and, and we, His servants, are serving Him. How are we sitting and serving all at the same time? I don't know how all that works. But, but in some way, and in, and in the glorious reality of the perfection of God, all of that is, is the administration of God's great perfection for us through Him, by Him, and to Him. Not only are we with God. But we reign with God. Forever. And ever. No stronger way for John to say that. And it's with the mention of that. With the mention of that great promise at the end. That John's vision ends. It's almost as if the. The penny that he put in the dime store thing, as he's watching it go around, the light turns off. Absolute perfection are to be enjoyed forever. In Christ. And all the purposes of God are, are now realized in redemption and in resurrection and in eternal glory. I dare say we would end the book like that if we were ending the book. We we'd probably just put an exclamation point there and stop. But we're not done with this book. Because Christ has a few more things we need to hear. A few final exhortations. We'll get to those next time. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you. Thank you for this wonderful view of our future. And like we said at the very beginning, it's hard for us to even comprehend all that you have for us in Christ. We read it, we, we dig into it, we, we are told here what it's like, and, and yet we still have a hard time putting our minds around it. Because it's so much more entailed than just what's here. But this is what you wanted us to know. And throughout it all, we've seen your perfection from from the very beginning to the very end. We've seen the the great glory of Jesus Christ revealed as King of kings and Lord of lords from beginning to the very end. And while we can have discussions about details and about... uh, time frames and all of those kinds of things, uh, Father, I would hope that we don't get lost in all of that and forget the reality of what You have told us. That we might revel in these things and long for the day when You would come and be motivated here and now to do and live exactly as You have commanded us to live and to follow in the steps of Your Son, Jesus Christ, who is our example. May that be our heart's cry every day. May that be the motivation of our very soul. So that when we serve one another, we're serving you. So that when we share the gospel, we're sharing it because of you. When others come to know Christ, it has nothing to do with us and all of you. So that you are all in all. Lord, thank you for our time this morning. May your spirit impress these upon our lives this day. In Jesus' name, amen.